0: Alex Ebert, welcome to the Metagame. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. This is uh, a pleasure, already.
1: (laughs) Just before we hit record, you said something that's now on my mind. Uh, You said, memes have made us more philosophical. Mm. What do you mean by that? So there is an immediacy To memes, there
0: is a contractive, consolidated quality to meme whereby information is compacted. Uh, Disparate information is compacted. And of course, we're used to this. We are used to montage and we're used to the idea of stories and different images being placed next to each other. And we sort of enter through the ingresses and the spaces in between. But with the meme, it's all compacted into one place into a single image but now we're actually just creating them and we're exposing ourselves to them every day and that compactment of nuance requires sort of a a certain philosophic mind state Um, and the amount of information of nuance that is left out of those memes by necessity because the memes are compacting information such that you You no longer have the nuance, so you have to bring, you don't have the nuance in the meme, so you have to bring the nuance to the meme. And in that sense, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of deigning and sort of like daimonic work there where it's like, you know, in order to even make sense of a meme, you have to sort of engage this nuance production. And a lot of these memes leave you in a state that is in some sort of gray area and some limbo. There's a lot of like indefinitude in uh, in the most popular memes, you know, a lot of like, what does that mean? I mean, there's now philosophers of memes who try and make sense of memes for you, <laughs> you know, and, and there's, there's so many different ways and you can take one format and have it mean a whole bunch of different things. Uh, same meme format can be used by the alt-right and by the left and by the center and, you know, um, all the different little mimetic tribes. So yeah, I think that there is a return in a sense by that consolidation, stripping out of nuance. There's a return of the requirement of nuance, um, in that a whole story is contained in a single image. If you can fill in the blanks and, um, and that's interesting. You know, and I think that we don't really think of ourselves as philosophers, right? We don't think of these meme posters, these shit posters out there as philosophers. But I think the, in a
1: lot of ways, that's what's happening. That philosophy is the new pop. Yeah, you know, um, the word that came to mind was compression and how the internet tends to compress things like Twitter. You have to compress an idea into however many characters or Instagram, you have like an image or a series of images that compresses somebody's identity into, you know, a brand or something like that. And memes are like the art form of compression, right? Like it's like, there's so much information being conveyed in one image and they tend to be funny and they tend to make callback humor to other memes. And there's a question of what level to interpret the meme on, and it's almost how because they're so compressed, because you don't have that much bandwidth to play with them, it forces you to be more philosophical in the way you interact with it, because you you don't know what level to interpret the meme on. You know, sometimes it's yeah. a it's it's like a callback to something that you just didn't have the context for, so you don't actually get it. Um, or sometimes uh, it is just you know interpreted at the most sincere level.
0: And you know that 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 callback. Necessity. And by the way, I'm glad you brought up compression because that's actually a word that I've trained myself to stop using because it's confused so many people. But you clearly, it's not going to confuse you, and hopefully, it won't confuse your audience. But compression, um, compression is sort of that. That's that's the name of the game. It's not only the name of the game in terms of memes and compressing information, but information theory, compression, compressing information into bits and bytes and uh, thumb drives and compressing it in order to communicate it. Everything must be compressed to be communicated. You know, we're compressing our ideas into language, into symbols, and then communicating so they can be delivered. And the more you compress something, the faster it can be delivered. And the meme, in some ways, is the fastest medium that we've ever seen because it's all compressed into a single spot. Hmm. All these disparate images and disparate ideas are compressed into a very single location. And I love the thing you brought up later. When we don't have context for a meme, we feel like we don't necessarily understand it. And it actually induces a sensation of FOMO. Mm -hmm. And it induces the whole paradigm of status anxiety around cool. And there's a great joke uh, that I love to tell that you may have heard me tell before, but it goes, um, how many hipsters does it take to screw in a light bulb? What, you don't know? Right. <laughs> and the idea is like, you know, only the hip really know how many hipsters it takes to screw in a light bulb. I and mean, if you don't know, you're not part of the club, pal. You know, and, um, and you're on the outside. You don't get to belong to that sort of like nested hierarchy of cool. And, um, and memes are like that. You know, memes compress content such that, and, and you know, the, the best meme posters will intentionally leave out any context so that it feels like you have to have gone through certain protocols and certain crucibles in order to even grasp the meme. And in, in that way, that these, this is like the fucking rites of illusion mysteries, right? It's like you only mm. get the, the, each meme is a compressed philosopher's stone and um, the more compressed it is, the higher the level of philosopher you have to be <laughs> to even understand
1: it. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting time to communicate information. Yeah. And, you know, for those listening, we obviously just jumped into something and maybe uh, people feel uh, <laughs> like uh, they're on the outside of it, but just to kind of invite you in. So um, I, I was saying this earlier, I see you as a philosopher um, and that's how I've encountered your stuff. But most people probably know you from Edward Sharp wow. and the Magnetic Zeros and from your work as a musician. And I actually think these two things are very related and it's almost like if you are a sincere enough or committed enough artist or musician, you end up encountering philosophy. And the same is true from the other way around. Mm. Um, and I wonder, uh, I wonder if you agree with that and mm. maybe uh, to what extent that's been true in your, in your whole journey. I mean, to me, that's true. Um, I feel like
0: I meet a lot of musicians for whom... That, I should, I, I, let me back up. <laughs> I don't want to denigrate musicians. Mm. I, th- I think that all musicians I meet experience something akin to the relationship between absence and excess. Mm. That, that there is a certain absence to the excess of the ecstatic moment and that there is a certain um, excess to that absence and that confrontation with that sort of apophatic God space, that universal sort of congealment of humanity and music and sound and being that sort of psychic connectivity that is truly required to be in a musical space with other people um, and and certainly I think that all musicians that experience that at that sort of level are confronted with that ultimately. Um, unspeakable indeterminate ratio of absence and excess yet the extent to which they want to engage with that further or ever want to even talk about that you know there's a there's a funny story uh that i have where i i um i had just won this golden globe and uh and so i'm in the glow of like you know of of this whole thing in in other people's eyes too, and Bono, and Robert Redford are having a conversation, and Bono or Redford goes, "Alex, come here," <laughs> and he brings me into the conversation, and uh, and they're and they're talking about something or other, and some funny thing, and then Redford goes, "You know who really understands silence? This guy," and he points at me, <laughs> and Bono and Redford turn to me, and I was like. Immediately I was like, ah, oh, this what an amazing opportunity to talk about this indeterminate ratio of excess and absence because the silence is sort of this ingress to the excess that that the only nothing is spawned by imminence, you know. And so I launched into this thing. <laughs> and they they their faces just go fucking pale and their smiles just crumble off their face. And that was the end of the conversation. Hmm. Um, it was like, okay, uh, you know, see you later. (laughs) (laughs) So I tell that story to say that he understands silence, but we don't necessarily want to talk about it. Like in any sort of, you know, philosophical sense, we don't necessarily want to get into it or understand it or anything like that, but just to say that, you know, this is a thing. And and I think that there's a wisdom in that, um, mm-hmm. in that sort of like apophatic sort of remove. Um, but that is not my connection to it. I mean, the Magnetic Zeros themselves were a mathematics before it was a band. It was a mathematics I invented... Um, without knowing anything about mathematics while I was simultaneously inventing my own version of string theory because I had figured out what nothing truly was, that nothing was a compression. Mm. And depending on the compression of zero, there's different zeros and they exert different magnitudes on space and draw things into it. You know, and so I had this whole rubric of zeros and nothing that were these magnetic zeros, which is still the foundation of my philosophy today, um, but, the extent to which, you know, I meet musicians who are equally interested in, you know, esoteric shit. Um, you know, I, I wish was more in a certain sense because you share, you set, you share such a, a visceral,
1: um, spiritual connection with musicians when you play with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something there that reminds me of, uh, how it's impolite to dissect a joke and how a lot of people don't like the idea of getting like too philosophical or too like technical about humor or something else that you know people like to keep totally. mysterious like you know human relationships and, and things like that um and i think there's there's wisdom in that there's wisdom in mm-hmm. leaving things unsaid or expressing them in non-conceptual terms but i'm i'm very interested in the most artistic forms of concepts, you know, like the the appropriate use of language, like what true philosophy actually is, you know, when it's not just kind of like a language game or some intellectual circle jerk. And I feel like the people that are good at that, they tend to be more than just philosophers. They tend to have a life Mm. outside of their, their language games. And I feel that's true for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely true for me. I I, th- I think that the the main qualifier to me is like, does. Are you? I don't know if there's a better term for this, but like, where's your diamond? Like, where, are you turned on mm-hmm. by the, like, to what extent is your spirit moved? Because that's in some ways the only important factor uh in philosophy to me um but that's the reason why i'm an autodidact it's the reason why i care it's the reason why i get excited it's the reason why i get out of my twin bed in the morning you know it's like it's the um it's the driver and um and and it's the reason why i make music I oh, shit it's the reason why i cook it's the reason why i, I like to uh not look at recipes and experiment or Mm. get in touch with whatever it is that's driving me in the moment. Um, and, um, and yeah, I think that for me philosophy in some ways is all of those things boiled down into a word. It's like, it's all encompassing.
1: Yeah. Um, the way I understand that is there is a vital energy, you know, some people call it the the daimon or like libido or vitality itself or something, some sort of life force that we can develop a relationship with. And it almost has, um, it almost has its own ambitions for us. And uh, it's like when people say that they, they discovered something when they created it, they didn't actually create it, or mm-hmm. um, they have a relationship yeah. with the muse the muse visits mm. them. The daimon visits them. And I, this is like a huge topic uh, in my personal life. I've, I've always been trying to find ways in which to develop a better relationship with that that inner voice or those instincts. Or I'm trying to use different language to, to resonate with different people. Um, and one of the things I've found is coming back to what you said earlier, silence is kind of the most important thing. Like some form of nothingness is needed. Some sort of openness is needed in order mm. to hear what this, this life force energy daimon thing has to say. And so I'm curious about, um, I guess, like, do you have any practices for developing a relationship with that, that voice?
0: Um, yeah, I have, uh, <laughs> I have a practice, uh, that is, uh, no practice. Uh, hmm. I'm almost sort of like emphatically chaotic, chaotic. Um, when people ask me, how do you get your sound? I say rushing. Um, because mm. the problem with success is that you end up uh, having too many tools at your disposal, and so, in some ways, the only constriction that remains that can be your ally is time, um, and um, and to constrain yourself uh, with time such that um, you know if I have an impulse, I just go, and I, I that what what that ends up meaning is that I end up having myriad projects all over the place all in different states and conditions none of them finished and uh my manager freaking out thinking i'm fucking insane and uh and it's completely uh uh you know like almost immune to success um and constantly creating moments of self-immolation but what that does because the brand, I, I end up non, you know, redundancy ends up becoming sort of foreign to the process because redundancy is not necessarily, um, you know, what gets the muses off. And, uh, in fact, I generally find that, you know, if you get successful at something and you start repeating that success, the muses just leave, mm. um, because it's like, they have nothing more to contribute. Um, and, um, and so that, by remaining in sort of a a state of becoming, I end up tapping on and landing all, all these sort of predicate states of being where I have these moments of success and these moments of completion. But as soon as those moments of completion have occurred, the process, that process has died. And of course, I can take that process and start distributing it across time as a redundancy, as a brand, and gain traction and success and money and all those sorts of things. But I have found that those things, that process, if followed long enough, uh, kill me. And mm. um, I'm just not, not that interested in that. So my, my process in some ways is to um, constantly stay moving and, uh, and, and aware of where my joy, uh, where my joy is pointing. And sometimes it's very, very difficult. And that's and, and that's to say that what I'm describing is not a willy-nilly sort of like, uh, you know, easy whistling Dixie sort of protocol. It's actually really tough right. to leave predicate states of success. So you end up suc- succeeding at this or you do that. And this thing works in a show. Oh, I said this thing before this one song, and I played the song in that way, and it was wildly successful. I should repeat that tonight. Hmm. And then I'll repeat it the next night, and the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And then all of a sudden, the schema, the raw schema itself, ends up hollowing out and subsisting as its own entity without the need for a spirit inhabiting it and that state all of a sudden robs you of um, any sense of, of vitality because the thing doesn't even need vitality it's just this formula and so anyway the thing that's tough is leaving that predicate state and jumping off again because you get comfortable in that predicate state you know that it works i am this this works this is this this is that i am that all these things are working as that and uh, and yet that externalization of the self into that which works as this image um, robs us of our of our spirit, in my experience. So the difficult part is being like, okay, fuck it, and I'm going to leap again. Sometimes I have gotten into a place where I've become so much of that. And, and in a funny twist of fate, the, the time I experienced this the most was in a band called I'm a Robot. Hmm. And that name itself ended up becoming sort of central to this plight is like, I really felt like I'd become a robot. I was on a major label and I was making songs that I thought would be successful because they had this specific sort of formula and I had engaged myself and my ego with sort of proving myself to my manager and the label. And and, um, leaving that, you can, you can engage with that so much in my experience that you'd can know, if you're, you, can, you can stop and be like, okay, I'm going to experience silence and see where the diamond is and experience that repose and just kind of wait for it to come. And I did that and I waited and I waited and nothing came. Hmm. And I was like, what the fuck? Where, where did I go? And it didn't come. And I, was, I had become, at that point, I became very, very, very suicidal Mm Because I'd never experienced that before in my life. I felt like I had no instinct any longer. And before I killed myself, I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to kill myself. Like, seriously, I think maybe I'll kill myself. But just before that, I had an idea. I was like, I'm going to try this out. I reminded myself of when the last time I felt purely free was and and purely instinctual. And it was when I was five years old. So I pretended, okay, I'm going to pretend I'm five years old. And I'm just so grateful that I had this instinct, I guess it was my last remaining instinct, was to imitate myself at five. And I literally just imitate myself at five. I was walk around, pat my chest, look at stuff, like pretend stuff was novel to me, like, oh, look at these shoes, they're blah, blah, blah. It was really hokey and really stupid. And um, it worked. Hmm. And within a couple of days of constantly pretending I was five years old, um, and writing songs as if I was five, as if I didn't know what a verse or a chorus was. I'm just making music. All of a sudden, my life opened back up to me, and I had to suddenly make all these changes in my life, and I leaped from everything. I was in AA. I was in a relationship. I had a house. I had a band. I had a cell phone. I had the Internet. Uh, and I left all that and and leapt. And uh, that, that moment, in some ways, taught me my... Um, my biggest lesson. And I've definitely slipped back into those predicate states before, but not to the extent that I've ever let it totally hollow me out.
1: Yeah. So it, in a way you actually did commit suicide. Yeah, absolutely. Right.
0: Each one of these is a death and that upsets some people It'd be like, no, 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 only death is death. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that each time we face any of these moments, the death of the ego, identity, the, de- the, the death of a day, the sunset used to make me cry hmm. um, every time the sunset, you know. Um, and I think that in some ways there's a certain death meditative uh,
1: aspect to that that's, that's helpful. Um, yeah. So you, you were exploring these themes of, uh, of like our desire to have like a concrete identity. Um, while also simultaneously wanting to be something that is becoming in the process of becoming and transforming. And it seems like very related to this notion of self immolation. So I understand it as you, you destroy that concrete identity so that you can become something else, but then maybe life is just like a series of these plateaus that eventually become Mm -hmm. too constraining and then you have to destroy them and, and until you get to the next one. Um, so. What, that to me sounds like a dialectic. That sounds like those two things mm-hmm. are always going to be in tension with one another. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you think, I don't know, maybe uh, this is still something you're exploring, but how do you think an individual can negotiate that throughout their life?
0: Um, okay. So there's the one, there's on the one hand, the thing that I just described a bunch and the sort of like what you just described, a thousand plateaus, the like you know, lines of flight and plateaus and plateaus and becomings and beings and becomings and beings, and self-immolation uh, over and over and over again. And um, and you know, the the, the primary ingredient in uh, in that, I think, is uh, courage and willingness mm. uh, or even acceptance. And those are really difficult. I mean, that can take a lifetime to master. Um, being willing to leave the relationship that clearly isn't fucking working, Mm -hmm. uh, to, to leave the job that's killing your fucking soul. Um, these things are, uh, highly, highly existentially difficult to confront. And, um, and so that's, that's a whole thing right now. I know, people and 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 the cases you can start to fetishize the becoming where it's like, okay, I'm going to constantly immolate. I'm gonna pre-immolate, right? Like I'm constantly declaring preemptive war on my predicate state such mm. that I never even allow the success to happen. Like as soon as I taste it, I fucking blow it up. And I've experienced um, that as well. And that that is a uh, that is a neurotic compulsion as faulty as the clinging to the predicate state. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no better. Uh, it's just as overdetermined by the unconscious fear of death and the unconscious fear of the annihilation as clinging to being, in the sense that I'm so afraid of, for instance, experiencing the unifying love of my mother when I was in the womb or on the teat that I will never and always uh, preemptively reject any love in my life that remotely reminds me of being sublimated by another, such mm. that I'll never engage with a woman or a lover or whatever or a friend in a way that's that close because I'm always going to preemptively reject it because I never want to experience the pain of having to accept it and then reject it. Right. Because that's too painful. So I'm just gonna always reject this predicate state. So so both of them are overdetermined by this fear and they're both compulsive and neurotic. So you know there's this Intermediate ground where you experience, you witness, you become, and then you just experience when it's over, and you move, and that's this, you know, incredible description of mastery in a lot of ways. Um, However, I do think that there is possibly a a sublation of the sublations, if you will, or a a a culmination um, of the. So, if we imagined, for instance, our life as a intervals of becomings and beings, and becomings and beings, and change and stasis, and change and stasis, and then we compressed all of that into a single ball, such that the entire process of the dialectic is sublated, um, and I, I'm experimenting with that right now. So that would be sort of like this Walt Whitmanian. I contain multitudes, thing, as opposed to I visit the multitudes mm-hmm. and I am the space in between myself, um, experiencing the self as the container of the multitudes. And um, right now, that's all I can say is that I'm experimenting with it uh, on my Bad Guru Substack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm just starting small and I'm starting with a little sort of rubric. But what, but i will divulge that i think one of the main drivers of all this is status anxiety and that um, there's a certain sense in which if we'd never felt the gaze of the external um that we might never consider the various predicate states right because we wouldn't necessarily have a relation uh with which to confirm or deny our predicate state against any other predicate states. Mm. And the projections, for instance, of, oh, wow, well, okay, so Daniel is this podcaster, right? And he has met a game. And, um, you know, suddenly Daniel changes and isn't doing that. and so Oh, I suppose that failed or that didn't work, right? I'm in a relationship and it didn't last for fucking ever. And so that relationship didn't work out. Well, what kind of fucking attitude is that? Right. I mean that that's giving this incredible privacy to duration, and suddenly we feel like we have to stay in these predicate states and that that I- an incredible amount of pressure to remain this, you know arrived state. So I think in in a certain sense, I'm aware of that social status, anxiety to the extent that I don't think that I can necessarily escape it, but I can mitigate it and I can mitigate it by presenting myself as a container and letting everyone know that this is me, but the me that I am is all of these things. And you may get one me today, and you may get one me tomorrow, and if you're not okay with me variating uh, and being a variegated self, then by all means, like, you know, the other way, uh, let's not be friends or something, or, you know, I'll let you know when I'm the one me that you do like. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and, and I'm going to experiment with that because I think that confronting that status anxiety and that pressure to remain the same or to claim the thing. So for instance, even the trans movement, right, mm-hmm. which is this incredible declaration of, um, of motion, has become for a lot of people uh, an incredible declaration of immobility, because it's like, well, now I'm going to cling to this one uh, letter of the alphabet. This is me now, and um, you know, and and whatever the case, and and now I identify with this, and I have my flag with that, and blah blah blah. And this declaration, is beautiful declaration of mobility, of non-binary mobility, suddenly becomes this sort of like static, compressed thing again. And I have friends that are trans. And, uh, and get completely lambasted by the community if they end up you know, uh, being like momentarily heterosexual. It's like, you fucking traitor, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, well, wait, wait a minute. What are we, I thought we were, <laughs> you know, I thought this whole thing was about fluidity. Um, so, so yeah, there's this incredible pressure that we put on ourselves to remain in a specific state. Even if we say, oh, well this state that I'm in is totally mobile. It's like okay well then you know suddenly we can compress that and boil it down into immobility
1: yeah i think this connects with uh the tendency for the internet or for our digital ecology to compress us and how like mm. if you spend enough time on twitter with your little twitter avatar and like your little bio and and all the stuff that you you need in order to interact in that ontology you can start to confuse who you are for that that persona and I wonder to what extent this uh, pressure to be self-consistent across time is a function of an increasingly digital life. You know, the more time we spend in these spaces, at the end of the day, it's all like ones and zeros. And we have to fill out forms to kind of indicate what we are. And that's we we make ourselves more legible than we actually are so Mm -hmm. that the technology can interface with us.
0: Yeah, man, the amount of times we're asked to uh, externalize our identities um, in these forms and in these, you know, and the the amount of times we're just confronted with it, like in our bio or just our picture or whatever the case is, you know, it's like that mirror stage for the infant happening over and over where the parents are coming around going, that's you, that Mm -hmm. in the mirror, that's you, not you, you're not you, but that thing in the mirror, that's you. You know what are you going to be again? All these externalizations of like find yourself as if you're not yourself. Find your voice as if you're not speaking with your voice. And um, yeah, so we keep doing this to ourselves. And and like you say, we keep there's this movement uh, and this drive to just keep finding more and more predicate states. And if you don't know or you know the the you know, I, I wanna be a, 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 a medallion member of Delta, but mm. I I much prefer to be a diamond medallion member. And then if I'm a diamond medallion member, I really wanna be at the in the Delta you know, the, the admiral's club or whatever, so that I can get the free banana before the plane flight. And everyone can see me getting the free banana because then I'll feel good eating the banana. Everyone knows that I got it from the admiral's (laughs) club, not from the fucking, you know, and and so there's all these like interior interiors of interior. And we want to belong to the most cloistered, sheltered sort of nested hierarchy we can. And, um, and so we end up defining ourselves further and further. It's like, I'm not just you know, uh, straight, but I'm this, or I'm not just left I'm fucking Ancom, Viacom, Shmomcom, like all these different, you know, nested hierarchies. So I can define myself further and further. And what's interesting is that in the age of data, what we're really doing is data sorting ourselves for fucking capitalist interests. So even if we're, you know, it's like, we're just getting more and more specific so they can market to us more and more specifically, but even more importantly market us to others, you know, and, um, Uh, to companies and, you know, because at the end of the day, we are the product and, um, it's, (laughs) it's such an interesting time to, to be analyzing these sorts of things.
1: Yeah. It's our, our environment naturally has these, these gradients or these slots that kind of like pull us into that tendency to define ourselves prematurely. Um, because it's, it's obviously it's useful for, for the goals of, of the system. And I think, status anxiety you mentioned it a couple times that's that's one of the main drivers i'll share a funny story um that popped into my head uh actually last night i was uh, i experienced status anxiety and I, I felt it um very acutely and i it's been a while since i'd felt it like this so i actually was able to give it enough space to kind of like do something to me you know and i, I witnessed how it was affecting mm. me so I, I was, uh, I was meeting some old friends and, uh, we went for dinner and then they're like, Oh, like, let's go get a drink somewhere. And we walked down to King West, which is the street in Toronto where all the clubs are. And basically this is like the street in Toronto that traffics in status anxiety. Like all these places mm. they're designed to, to play around with that. You know, like there's beautiful women, there's like these cool clubs that you can only get into if whatever, whatever and and you i felt it i like i walked onto the street and i i saw all these people who were like better dressed than i was cuz we weren't planning to go out <laughs> and i i could feel it i could feel like there was like a you know we're in this new ontology and there's these like promoters and stuff um and uh so we went to this this bar that used to be just like a cool bar that you could just hang out in but now it's like turned more into a club and they said uh they're going to open in like half an hour and then the guy said like by the way just so you know um we can let you in if you're wearing shorts. And I was, it was like a very hot day. So I was wearing shorts and I was the one guy in the group wearing shorts. I was dressed very nicely though, but in shorts. And he's like, just so you know. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I I understand. And then I had this like knot in my chest, like while we walked away looking for another place and I just explored it. And I realized kind of like what you were saying, the status anxiety is a confrontation with one concretized version of myself. And then like how, how I'm supposed to be in this like higher status environment, or if I want to be a part of this, this club. And then it created discomfort. And then as I started to explore that, I started to identify more with actually what my priorities are. And I realized actually, Mm. you know what, I I don't really want to be a part of this club, at least not tonight. Um, this is not even what I wanted. You know, I just want to be talking to my friends. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, as I say this, discovering that status anxiety and and the honest experience of it can be a very powerful tool in mm-hmm. this whole dialectic that we're talking about of, of being and becoming.
0: Man, just even recognizing that we're experiencing status anxiety is a massive step. You know, mm-hmm. um, I bring up status anxiety with people that uh, are confident that they've never even experienced that, mm. you know, <laughs> and it's like... You know, and meanwhile they're wearing like a shirt on a hot day. It's like, why'd you put the shirt on then? Mm-hmm. We're completely governed by status anxiety. You know, like in my book on on cool, which I haven't put out yet, um, and I think I did this on the on the stoA uh, or a variation on it. In the book, I, I have I challenge the reader to to look up from the book and say and just yell out, um, "My name is so and so." and I want to improve as some aspects of my life, like wherever they're reading. And how fucking embarrassing is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and why? And, uh, you know, I think one of the best, I love this term that I came up with, <laughs> just being a permissionary. And there's a great uh, video that probably most everyone has seen, but it's worth always revisiting. I think uh, it's the Dancing Man at Sasquatch Festival. Yeah, yeah. That, and, um, you know, he is this, like, just, he's just going off dancing in such a way that is entirely objectively embarrassing. I mean, total, any of us would have status anxiety being like, "If uh, go there and dance like that guy on this hill in the middle of this thing where everyone can see you. Um, but for whatever reason, and however he did it, I don't know if it was drugs or how it occurred, but he said, fuck it. Or he didn't. And he just got some screw loose Hmm. whatever the case doesn't matter he started dancing then these other kids come around they start making fun of him and they start imitating his dance that little molecule of collected atomized humans ended up creating an attractor of permission Hmm. suddenly everybody had permission to do and be and express themselves in however, you know, whatever bodily motions they wanted to. And within seconds, it's thousands of people going ban- bananas, right? Like a, a, an amazing example of the power of the permissionary and the power of, um, of permission. And, and, and by contrast, the power that status anxiety. Uh, has over us for most of the time so the idea that you know we're at a car co- like that that wasn't happening the whole time when clearly everyone's having much more fun just expressing themselves but for whatever reason for 99 out of 100 you know minutes of that concert or whatever that was a stupid way to say it but most of the time uh, nobody <laughs> nobody is expressing themselves right uh, uh fully why is that? Why? You know, and why does it take some maniac to convince us that we're allowed to express ourselves? And why is that moment of the Dancing Man at Sasquatch Festival even worth mentioning? Well, it's worth mentioning because most of the time we're completely fucking repressed. Mm. And that's why that, that moment stands out. And, uh, and I think that once we just recognize that, so many dominoes fall.
1: yeah. What's your definition of status anxiety? Um, Ultimately,
0: uh, it's a uh, a fear of death. Um, Uh, Ultimately, it's the fear of ostracization and has to be recognized as a fear of death. So, for instance, I love mentioning that um, when we get embarrassed, uh, our cheeks flush hmm. because. we have, we are being flooded, uh, with, uh, hormones and, uh, and, and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm blanking on, um, you know, the same thing that, that the, the same mix of, uh, chemicals that floods our brain when we jump out of an airplane, um, adrenaline, endorphins and endorphins. adrenaline and, and so, on. and, um, and our hearts, our heart rate starts beating faster when we're embarrassed. Uh, and, uh, maybe yours did when the guy said, uh, that you, uh, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be let into the club cause you're wearing shorts and all of a sudden your palms are sweating as if, as if someone pulled a gun on you, as if like, why is your heart rate? Why, why is your heart going faster now? And it's basically all that to say that s- embarrassment is a survival mechanism. Embarrassment. Is a survival mechanism to keep us within the good graces of the group to which we belong. It's it's a survival mechanism to prevent us from being ostracized. And the reason why we're afraid of being ostracized is because it's built into our fucking DNA um, to belong as a mechanism to survive. And if we get ostracized or we get excommunicated or we get you know whatever the case is. Um, we, uh, we, we equate that with a, with a high prospect of, of dying. And, um, and yet it's very difficult, I think, for some people to recognize that that could still possibly be at work uh, when, uh, you know, you fucking... Are asking for a lid at Starbucks? Why would mm. we, why, why is something so inconsequential make us like sort of, you know, uh, ask for directions? No, I, I can't ask for directions. Right. It's like these inconsequential moments or, or expressing yourself or even just walking down the fucking street. I have status anxiety sometimes just literally walking down the street, doing nothing, interacting with nobody. And then there's another person on the street. It's like, uh, hi, uh, should I say hi, not say hi. Uh, what's the, uh, like, I'm going to do the, I'm just going to do that manly sort of nod. like, what the fuck is like all these things. Right. And so this, this whole, this whole protocol of status anxiety is all about sort of, um, protecting us from death. And so once we realize that it's an existential dilemma and we can start to draw lines to all of these neurotic uh behaviors um i think what then starts to unfold is like well what's our relationship to death hmm. where's where's our relationship to death at and it sounds super morbid and uh, and all of that but um the reality is that you know we don't have any more death initiations yeah. we don't have any I, my parents never had a death talk with me ever yeah. Um, uh, even when my grandparents died, like there was no conversation. Uh, we just don't really talk about it. And when we do, um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we see it in movies or we we get into death metal and we start fetishizing it or whatever the case. And we certainly don't, you know, if, if we found out today that, you know, Uh, a bunch of parents are putting their kids through death initiations where they drop their kids in the middle of the desert. They're like, Mm. have fun, kid. Like, hope you survive. Uh, Those parents would get thrown in jail. (laughs) Like, there's almost no room or space. Like, these days you get to have a bar mitzvah or a sweet 16, and uh, maybe if you're lucky, you get collegiate hazing, and that's it. Um, But we need to start building some, some, like, a return to sort of uh, some kind of relationship to death, and I think we're seeing that now uh, budding, budding and bubbling and I think that's really great the death doulas and mm. this sort of thing and, and in, in a sense even COVID and these these sort of um, confrontations with death um, so yeah I, I think that all of it sort of stems from you know again neuroses being the main function of it being to uh, overdetermine our lives such that we avoid death compulsively
1: you know yeah um something in there that resonates a lot with me is how arbitrary this feeling of status anxiety can be like with people who don't even really matter to you they can kind of prompt that feeling within you and to me like a very practical way that i've danced with this is by just getting really clear on the small group of people whose opinions matter the most to me so my Mm. gang you know, like, what is that, mm-hmm. you know, group of like six people or so where if they thought I was doing something weird, I would then feel <laughs> bad about it. Um, mm-hmm. But if other people think so, then I, I'm a little more immune and that, that kind of allows me mm-hmm. to, to be more principled. It allows me to have more courage, mm-hmm. etc. And uh, I want to share uh, something related to this. It's kind of funny. It was, uh, it was recently my birthday. And for my birthday, I asked this small group of people. Um this is kind of a death uh, ritual in a way. I asked them to debate my character, like go go to a bar and just like debate my character for a couple hours and then create a Google Doc of all my flaws and blind spots. <laughs> love and, it. And then uh, on my birthday deliver that to me as a as a gift and um that like locked all of this in for me because the experience of receiving this feedback um which you know is kind of painful to hear from people that you you love had like a a profound effect on like cracking open my ego. Like I just like all of a sudden mm. I I felt like I described it as like a mild psychedelic trip like I I felt like I I couldn't I couldn't marshal the defenses I normally would because I'm surrounded mm. by people that are that I trust who are all saying the same thing. And then so something mm. kind of opens up and then I can feel that it's coming from a place of love, so I'm able to accept it. Um but a very subtle thing that took a couple of days to sink in was that I just felt more courageous like the following week because Mm. I knew I was in good standing with the people that matter to me the most. Like they talked about Mm. all the shit that I was doing and I was like, oh, that's it. Okay. I can deal with this. Thank you. Thanks for this, you know, Google doc. Um, And now when I'm out in the world or when I like see things online or when I'm being pulled, you know, across like these, you know, gradients in the media or whatever, I feel so much more grounded because I'm coming back to that initial group of people Mm. that I'm in good standing with. So I wanted Mm. to ask you about this because I remember you once saying that you've always had this lifelong desire to have a crew and that your musical Mm. projects in some sense were a manifestation of it. And I've always felt that same way too. And I think I found my crew to some extent, but I, I wonder if you mean the word crew in the same way that I mean the word gang. Like, what do you, what do you mean by finding a crew?
0: Well, uh, I always remembered having that longing, and, um, and I think I must've told my mother something about it. And she was like, oh, I have this, um, I have the first story you ever wrote, I saved. Hmm. And she showed it to me. I was like six years old and it goes, uh, once there was a boy who had a crew. I was like, wow. And then it was like, uh, they traveled the world. And they also knew kung fu, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just so struck by that that this longing that I had always attributed in some way to growing up in a diaspora of Los Angeles, this intentionally strung out city with no hub and no sense of neighborhood, no sense of community and um and that there were these sort of experiential aspects that had drawn me, that had created a lack, that had drawn me to wanting a crew. But then on reading that, I was like, no, I I think, yeah, but I think that this might be something even more fundamental because I was six after all. Hmm. I don't think I was necessarily taking notice in that way yet. Um, I mean, maybe I was, but by crew, I mean, I think exactly the same thing. I mean this. It's so deep. It's hard to describe. But what I think I essentially mean is a. An interminable or interminable. Interminable? terminal. I'm having a fucking brain melt right with that (laughs) word. Anyway, whatever that is, um, resonance with a few others. Um, A a resonance on, on a psychic, spiritual level that is indescribably vast and allowing and deep and bound by more than proximity, by more than circumstance, by more than um, the incidental features of um, of living. That there is something almost metaphysical about the connection um, and I think, Part of that, and part of what's expressed in that story that I wrote when I was six is also crucial, is that they were traveling the world and they knew Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what I mean by that, and the way I interpret that, is that they had a mission. Mm -hmm. And I think that this idea of a shared mission, of a shared sense of where we're going, and what we want to do, and what we're creating together, um, is integral for me to the notion of a crew. So for me, a crew is not necessarily a bunch of guys that I hang out with and uh, drink with and have a good time on the porch with, but a gang that is all sort of facing the same direction and walking toward something together. And, um, and that, is just forever such a, an attractor for me and a, and, a, and a force for me. And I think that most of my friendships um, have definitely been forged in the, uh, within the prospect of creation um, hmm. as collaborative efforts and that the collaboration itself, the creativity itself, has sort of been the container, you know, and the kung fu or whatever the case is, whatever that whatever that thing is, whatever that mission is, um, that in some ways the mission itself is the is the crucible, is the uh, initiatory aspect. Um and um yeah, and I do I do in some ways still long for that and yet i know that i have also in many ways found that uh, the whole edward sharp thing was that hmm. um it was me drawing that in i wrote those songs intentionally with 13 parts i did the trumpet with my voice and a kazoo knowing that one day a trumpet player would be there i did all the Haze and stumps and background noises and banging on a tambourine out of time. Imagining all of these people, not musicians, but troubadours, uh, marching sort of down the uh, the rabble road, and uh, one by one, they all began to inhabit uh, this space and and this incredible. Camaraderie and crew was uh, was really formed, and I always think about Edward Sharp not as a band, but as this social experiment, as a um, as a crew. Mm. You know, in a lot of ways, if I was picking for musicians. <laughs> I wouldn't have picked, you know, half of the band wouldn't have been in the band. I mean, we took people on that that joined the band for a couple of weeks that had just been floated over the crowd that were playing a violin. And it'd be like, OK, you want to you wanna come? We had other people in the band that just simply weren't musicians. They could barely play their instrument. Or we had, you know, like a whole bunch of people singing that could barely sing and play. Like everything was allowed because it wasn't about the music. It was about the heart and the soul and the camaraderie and the idea of, um, of this union. And, um, and I think that's why for me, the, the band, even though we're not playing now and I needed a break because we became too successful, you know, it was again, a case of predicate repetition mm-hmm. and redundancy, but that band, those people, we are tied, uh, by blood forever, you know, in, in this really special way because of all that.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that came up for me when you shared that is I, I like I try to compile a short list of things that help me reduce my death anxiety um mm. because I remember when I first started to like really viscerally feel it i I could feel it differently on different days, and one of the things that makes me like quells the death anxiety is when I'm lost in the giving of my best gifts, you know like in in that moment, I can die, and I'll be like totally content but mm. but another one is uh when I'm with the crew and we're we're on that purpose, that shared purpose. Mm. And even like these archetypal images of, unfortunately, it's always like, you know, people at war and stuff where like, there's like this camaraderie among, you know, mm-hmm. soldiers. I, I, even as a kid, I would imagine myself in those situations feeling like I could die then. Like that would be like a decent, mm-hmm. decent way to go. And I, I think there's some wisdom in it because, you know, I initially went on this thread because I, I find the crew quells my status anxiety. And then you're saying status anxiety actually is death anxiety, and I'm seeing that actually it goes all the way straight to that. It it creates a a container where I feel almost like like the the aesthetics for death are are suitable. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a reason why the 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 band of you know uh, soldiers while marching into a certain death is so compelling and and just as a rubric to understand uh how it is that a crew or a gang can sort of sublimate that death anxiety um mm-hmm. you know yeah there's definitely something there and and um and I'm and I and I must say I'm not exactly sure how or what uh that functions and and how it is that it quells that death anxiety or sublimates it and integrates it as um this almost poetic feature of the crew itself that, that there is something inherently, you know, I, I think one aspect of the sublimation is, um, actually, and perhaps embarrassingly, um, a sense of the immortality that comes with, uh, a crew. Hmm. There's something about being with a crew that begins to feel eternalized the moments begin to feel like they're vibrating out into sort of this, um, harmonic eternity. Mm. Um, and, and, and especially when that's in combination with some sort of mission, it's like this thing starts to vibrate beyond ourselves. And, um, and also of course the image we have of the band of brothers or soldiers marching into certain death is of course also the, the same image that Homer paints for us of Achilles marching onto the battlefield to acquire certain immortality. There's something about the beauty of that coherence that that we seem to naturally associate with a sort of eternalized
1: reverberation. So um, we're coming up on the the hour mark here, and uh, I'd really love to hear you riff on the philosophy of cool. And the th- the thing that I'm feeling connected to right now is this topic about the crew and like the common purpose of the crew. If I think about what, what's the common purpose for me and my crew, you know, what's some sort of thread <laughs> that's been, you know, going throughout all, all of the things that we've been doing. And uh, I'm not going to say it's, you know, we're, we're trying to be cool. Um, it's that I act, I want to make... I want to make virtue cool again. I want to like Mm. Peter and I always say this, like I want to make virtue sexy again. I think that would be like a cool Mm. mission in life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because we desperately need it to be, you know, there's so many things Mm -hmm. right now that are not, um, are not worthwhile in, for the betterment of the whole, or for this whole human project, but they're for whatever reason they're seen as very cool. You know, all these like Mm -hmm. uh, stupid dances people are doing on TikTok or, Making money in the whole capitalist regime and, and all this, so part of my my interest in in your reflections on what cool is is so that I can uh, weaponize it, um, mm-hmm. which might not that might be a paradox, right? Because trying to make something cool is probably the least cool thing you can do. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> not but, necessarily. I mean, I mean, in in a lot of ways, it's the so cool is is a super flexible uh, word and. Um, you know, so for instance, one of the main impetuses for Edward Sharp was, um, I recognized in myself, at least, that the redundancy that I had created with I'm a Robot, which was essentially a sort of punk band, uh, post-punk, but, you know, like a very, 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 um, sardonic and Mm. uh, sarcastic and ironic and I would never smile on stage unless I was bleeding and um and it wasn't like that was a choice I felt completely bound by that I felt that um, Mm. that I couldn't smile on stage and one thing I began to notice is that the entirety of the sort of subculture I was a part of and and cool in general and I think even even culturally in general, especially if we consider the late 90s and um, nirvana and grunge and the sort of refusal of earnestness and the kill hippie scum or die hippie scum sort of attitude where it's like, you know, love and togetherness was the lamest thing you could possibly express. Hmm. Um, and it was totally suspect. And the only thing that was cool was to be sort of shoegazing and ironic, and all of that. And suddenly I realized, because that was the dominating paradigm, and this will get into sort of the the function of cool, the only real cool thing I could do, the only actually punk rock thing I could do, was to do the uncool thing. So, to be earnest, was the most punk rock thing I could do, um, because it was so fucking illegal, especially in the world of rock and roll. So this is 2007, this is pre-Obama Hope, this Mm. is... um, you know, pre all the sort of whatever uh, the pop folk stuff that came after us, and um, and so I did it, uh, and 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 I did it intentionally. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just like people have asked me like, yo man, like how'd you, why'd you like walk away from the whole I'm a robot like that was so cool. It's like because it wasn't cool, mm. because it was like because it was cool in quotations. It wasn't socially asymmetric. And so it wasn't genuinely cool. The only genuinely cool things um, are things that are socially asymmetrical. And that sounds in and of itself uncool because it's like formulaic. Mm. But the reality is that um, whatever hits the mainstream is suddenly acquired uh, by everyone ingresses itself into the dominant form of status anxiety such that everyone is now doing it by rote and it takes and requires no courage mm-hmm. to do the thing that you think is quote unquote cool so for instance you know uh, these days wearing a shirt that is pre-ripped or uh, pre-ripped jeans or pre-washed this or sort of you know you're purchasing your your um, you know you're purchasing your struggle, Uh, these sorts of things are no longer require any courage, they just require money and then you can walk out and also because those things are accepted now, um, and you can look that way, walking around looking like a homeless person, for instance, in Los Angeles, you can be completely confused for a rock star. And so it takes no, uh, courage to do one thing or the other. And I think in some ways that's why, you know, cool can suddenly, it, we saw in the last few years, got suddenly reappropriated by the alt-right, who are like, we're the cool kids now, we're the bad boys now, because we're sort suddenly the socially asymmetric mm-hmm. group. And I think in the context of um of what you're talking about in virtue, um it's perfectly prime society is for virtue, for instance, to become uh um cool and the reason is is because the dominant uh, uh, status anxiety sort of uh, uh, language has reverted once again um, to like a an incredibly post uh, modernist um, disavowal of I'm not going to say earnestness because there is still like this earnestness but I would say a disavowal of I guess you could even say a, a virtue mm. um that all things um that avow themselves to be what they claim to be mm. are sus they're right. sus and cringe right and so you have all this like if I am presenting and saying that this is what I am and I say that I believe in that so again it's sort of this sort of earnestness because you know it's like we experience these cycles in shorter intervals so in 2007 2008 it's like okay suddenly folk pop happens and there's you know home is wherever I'm with you and uh, Obama hope and then you have you know like Mumford and Son and all these sort of like all these things and all of a sudden now you have this like rebirth of earnestness, which almost immediately gets recuperated into the capitalist superstructure as the dominant paradigm again. And suddenly now it's just being used to sell Hondas. And suddenly now it's not asymmetrical. And suddenly now on my second and third albums, I'm like, shit, I can't do, I cannot iterate on home because it's just too, it's already lame. So now I have to sort of back off and think about like, what the fuck I'm going to do and think about, and because that interval failed to produce something that was genuinely hippie. So, for instance, the people that I felt came along and reappropriated Edward Sharp sound, which was innumerable. Actually, every time you hear a ding, 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 hey, ding, ding, ding like with the acoustic guitar and it's like a folk song, and that's that's all that's all straight up ripping off Home. Okay, mm. like I have no qualms about saying like I did that. And I can no longer, the reason I can't do that anymore is because the things they ripped off about it were not the things I was hoping they'd rip off about it. I knew like the hay thing, which I stole from Ennio Morricone. It's not like it's mine, you know, but like the thing that they stole was just the the superficial qualities and that instead of stealing the thing I wanted, which was the porousness, we made the album ourselves, we made it on tape. If you listen to Home and then you listen to sort of like, you know, I don't know, like fucking uh, of Monsters and Men or something, you'll hear a completely different sonic tapestry. One Mm. is like really well produced and clean and it's got all these sort of like, you know, perfectly mastered. And, you know, there's a lot of stacking of vocals and everything is thick and blah, blah, blah. And it's all the same loudness. It sounds like all the other songs on your radio. You listen to home, sounds like it's coming out of a garage. And what I was hoping is that people would take the garageness of it, take the porousness of it, the homemade quality of it and be like, okay, now that is sort of going to be popularized, and I'd actually be really happy if that had been copied. But instead, what actually upset me was just the haze and hoes and things were copied, but then made completely slick to sell fucking Hondas and uh, iTunes. And, um, And that sort of slickness, I should have obviously counted on because that's what always happens. But immediately, because that happened, the earnestness thing ran its course, right? right? And we're not even in that stage anymore. It didn't even get five years. It got like, it got like four years before everyone was like, nah, fuck that. Right, right. And, uh, and now we're again in this stage where it's almost like, fuck that to the nth degree. Like, fuck all that. And so now we're in a stage again where what's good about that is that now we have another chance. Now earnestness has another chance because it's been left again in this socially asymmetrical position. So earnestness, uh, virtue, these sort of things now are living in this sort of uh, socially asymmetric darkness, and have a chance if they, if if they, we, whatever, do it right, that when it's iterated on, um, and it begins to ascend, it's not immediately recuperated into, you know, like, like virtue Snickers and virtue mm-hmm. Keeblers and virtue like how are you going to, for instance. And this is the thing we always have to contend with. Like, okay, you want to make virtue cool. How do you keep it from immediately tilting into um, uh, manipulation? You know, and and being reappropriated instantly and recuperated into the the, the capitalist uh, superstructure. Now we could say, and we could say, well, you know what? And I asked my, this, myself this at first, and now I know the answer. When I was first starting Advertisher, I was like, what if love? becomes the dominant paradigm and everyone is in love and everyone's talking about this hippie shit and they're all being earnest. Will I still be earnest? Will I still be able to do it? Or do I actually suffer from like sort of avant-gardism where the only reason I'm even into earnestness in the first place is because it's uncool. Mm -hmm. Like, where am I really? And I ended up learning that, um, it was a little more incidental to my plight than I thought Mm. because if I was purely into earnestness for instance I'm purely into virtue and then Honda starts making all these virtue commercials will you still be able to be like yes virtue thank god Honda carrying the torch or will you be like fuck that's a little cringy I have to rethink this like how do we how do how do we have virtue is that still virtue or is it not and i still haven't figured that out like uh there is a side of me that thinks to myself that the full blown commercialization and um commodification of the individual vis-a-vis data uh as you know we're being traded as data bodies and and uh right now we're producing data and uh, right now we have you know sublimated from people into products we are right now at this very moment as we're speaking uh commodities um, is that somehow a communism of sorts? Is there a is there a is there a vision that sublimates capitalism into this sort of attentionless paradigm, wherein um, every interaction, every behavioral moment is somehow uh, commodified, and that that commodification somehow totalizes capital, such that it disappears, capital behind mm-hmm. all behavior, such that somehow in that totalization and in, in that disappearance of capital vis-à-vis the totality of capital, is there some silver lining? And is there some way that I can view this in a sort of accelerationist way, where I'm like, okay, you know what? If we want to make virtue popular,
1: let's make and the cool, T-shirts right now.
0: Let's make the T-shirts now. Right? Exactly. Let's yeah. let's. Uh, Let's let's make the fucking the lunch boxes, the movies, like the whole thing. Let's do it now. Celebrity and fucking endorsements. Fucking embrace the paradigm. Celebrity endorsements. Get right back into virtue, <laughs> and um, and you know, it, it's 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 up for conversation. It's not something that I have a, a handle on or or a final statement on. But to say that right now, virtue is in the perfect placement to be cool because it's uncool, um, and you can enjoy that social asymmetry until the point at which it becomes acquired by symmetry. And at that point, uh, there's a reckoning. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's just seems to be the way it, the way it goes. Um,
1: yeah. So you, you mentioned, uh, attentionalism, which I think is relevant here. So our mutual friend, Alexander Bard, uh, wrote about this, you know, like two decades ago. Um, well, let me put, another thing on the table first. It, it almost sounds like capitalism does this like reverse alchemy to cool and just like converts it into profit. And then it's uncool. And it's like this whole concept of selling out, you know, like don't ever be a sellout, but the cool thing is now primed for money. And the whole capitalist machine tries to take that and then gives you the temptation to sell out. And then it's not cool anymore, but you know, you made your fuck you money or something. And what I find interesting is if Bard is right, and I think he is, about attentionalism taking place or or taking the place of capitalism, it means, and I think this is what you're saying too, if I understood you correctly, eventually the things that make money or the things that um, money affords are going to be so uncool that there will now be that social asymmetry for people who are outside of that paradigm. And like one example of this is uh, Joe Rogan and his fame um, as a podcaster as I see it is, is entirely a function of his like authenticity and the fact that he was just vibing with his buddies. And he did that until he became, you know, the biggest in the world. And then he, so he won the attentionalist economy there. And then he translated some of those attentionalist credits into a deal with Spotify. And, uh, that cost him actually, I think that cost him some social credit it was like, he, he sold out a little bit, but he could afford it. Cause he had so much, you know, credibility from the attentionalist paradigm. And maybe he could do that a couple more times or whatever, you know, and he converted attention into $150 million or whatever it was, but you can't do that indefinitely. In, in this new paradigm, which is going to be based a lot on trust is this, you know, is, are Daniel and Alex saying what they believe right now, or are they trying to like posture in a certain way so that, you know, people like them like that, that kind of, that to me, that, that, that's all in the same, in that same column is earnestness is virtue. Is love. It's like all these things that it's not only that they're uncool and then they, they're ripe to become cool, but to do them r- like in the real way, it's hard. It requires courage. It requires traits that most people don't have.
0: Yeah. And there's, and there's one, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a slight snag that I just want to highlight that mm. I, di- I didn't actually, I want to frame this as, as an effective woke. Um, so in the '90s we had selling out, and then around 2000, you know, artists started not making money from CD sales and started looking at these other advertisements. And suddenly you have Kendrick Lamar doing Amex commercials and such. That would have totally been considered selling out in the '90s. And part of the way that that has been allowed to occur is that is, is a function of woke. And what I mean by that is that, for instance. Taking an idea like whiteness or a patriarchy and making that the problem whiteness um, as uh, Du Bois pointed out I think first, um, was a uh, a wage um, what did he call it? He called it a wage anyway it was a, it basically what he described it as a social wage to give to. Um, slave wage labor white people after the emancipation of uh, the enslaved to make people, white people that were still feeling like, you know, like they were totally the butt of capitalism, that were making like no money, to give them some semblance of like a sort of mid-grade aristocracy so that they could sort of almost as to assuage any potential um, rebellion of the lower classes. Um, a consolation, and, and so that that yeah, consolation like a wage. I think he, a wage consolation. He almost said it something like that. Anyway, so so is this idea of like a consolation, a social consolation, but it's also to divide the lower classes. So so suddenly you you don't have these sort of blacks and whites congregating together. Um, you know, complaining about capitalism or complaining about their slave wage uh, jobs. Um, you have this sort of division and you have this sort of like low-grade aristocracy and um, it sort of makes them feel, you know, whatever. And so this was Dubois sort of comment on whiteness as a wage compensation. That's what he called it, a wage compensation. And um, then you have this idea sort of start to promulgate, which is that whiteness is essentialized to the white person. So as opposed to it being a compensation or a social you know, compensatory mechanism to create these divisions in class and all that, it's actually now being rethought as essential to the white person, essential to the white worker, essential to the white man, the white woman, the white person, such that whiteness actually refers to them in their essence, not as this trick played on the white person. Whiteness initially was thought of as this trick played upon the white person to convince them that slave wage labor was okay, to give them this consolation prize, to convince them to keep working for, you know, tiny ducats, right? And then suddenly now it's not that. It's actually essential to the white person and suddenly now whiteness is the problem as opposed to the capitalist structure, as opposed to the slave wage, mm. la- slave wage labor that yielded whiteness in the beginning. Similar with patriarchy, right? It's all the, the man's fault and these sort of things, and they all have total validity, but the problem with identifying uh, the problem as in, like, within essentialized to the specifics of essential to the man or essential to the white, um, the whiteness suddenly now the capitalist structure gets to go away scot-free. Suddenly now it's not the problem of the capitalist structure, it's the problem of the whiteness and the man. And now if we can start to just get women up into those positions and black people up in those positions, everything will be fine. Because the capitalist structure is not the problem, it's actually these essentialized characters that were uh, participating in that structure. And all of a sudden you lose um, the systemic analysis. And by losing the systemic analysis, suddenly we can celebrate when uh, Kendrick Lamar does an Amex commercial. Hmm. You know, we can celebrate these moments of uh, black excellence or of women uh, becoming CEOs and this whole thing and, uh, and and all of that. Or the first trans, you know, billionaire or whatever the hmm. case is and totally forego the systemic analysis. And um, that has been pretty uh, pretty damaging to, um, well, let me just put it this way. Okay. So this was all just to sort of precede the conversation with regard to how it is that, that selling out is no longer a thing. Ah, okay. Sorry. I found myself. So the thing I wanted to state is that cool By Vis-a-vis this move by woke to essentialize the systemic analysis into a personal analysis and leave the system alone, woke has done an incredible thing to cool, whereby it has left the system of capitalism as totally fair game for cool, such that cool can now access the entirety of the capitalist system without being uncool, because it has directed all of the mainstream anger and angst onto and projected it onto these essentialized characters, which are the patriarch and the white race. And uh, and by doing that, suddenly it leaves the capitalist structure alone. And now you have, you know, the coolest kids I know um, drink Coca-Cola. Uh, they uh, listen to Beyonce. Um, they have no problem with anything hmm. capitalist. In fact, it's ironic and cool. It's like the more, the the less fucks you give about selling out in the sort of capitalist context, the cooler you are. And so this has had this incredible benefit to the capitalist structure where the man or the mainstream or the thing we're rebelling against has been projected to be outside of the capitalist structure. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola, you know, because it's so inclusive and it has all these amazing commercials, they're the, you know, the the number one polluter of plastics in the world. They, uh, number one cause of type two diabetes, which predominantly affects people of color. Uh, but none of these things are of any importance, right? Because um, it's projected that, uh, that Coca-Cola is this sort of, you know, inclusive brand. Anyway, all that to say, I've been really mystified by any lack of, um, of this selling out uh, sort of thing. And, um, and so that if we're going to bring virtue back into things, <laughs> I would imagine that virtue somehow has to um, confront a more equanimous, equanimous, boy, I'm really making up words today. Equanimous. Equin- <laughs> equanimous uh, take on um, on social hierarchy and capitalism, economics, etc., um, such that things like the truth are not thought of as cringe. I mean, we're living in a time right now where facts are cringe, the truth is cringe. There is no um, sort of reality. We're all living in our personal bubble, and that is the spiritually um, correct way to view the world. It is the evolved way to view the world that uh, everything is made of alternative facts. But my question is from that place, how can we possibly improve the world? How can we possibly avoid a totally atomized state wherein which we are simply the grist of uh, data mining? So it's a really interesting double twist that's been done where there is no selling out anymore. In fact, selling out is cool. Selling out is ironic. Selling mm-hmm. out is a statement of defiance. <laughs> and um of giving no fucks and um and it's that that right there has left me in in a very that that's been on my mind for the last 10 years as I've seen that go down and as I've witnessed, you know, the sort of crumbling of uh, virtue around uh, systemic analysis of capitalism. And as I've witnessed suddenly the ascendance of selling out as a viewed as some sort of disruption. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. I uh, I think what's kind of confusing about this is the different uses of the word cool, because maybe it's cool to sell out right now in the sense that it's acceptable. And then you're saying that that's also giving this asymmetry where the things that are not acceptable in the mainstream are like ripe to become the next cool thing. And so I feel like there's, there's two definitions of, of cool there. One of them is what's like, quote unquote, cool, like acceptable. For whatever reason, it's now acceptable to sell out. But then the other is like what's actually cool with a capital C, which hasn't come to pass yet because once it does, then maybe it's not cool anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got these double meanings all over the place. It's like, um, you know, it's difficult. Uh, the, the word that I've been using for the socially asymmetric cool is sort of like, um, cachet because it actually means, you know, like a hidden, uh, uh, hidden and sort of cloistered, um, cachet, uh, or cache of, um, of value. And, and that cachet disappears as soon as the social asymmetry disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it is ingressed into the mainstream and, and, uh, and in a lot of ways, the teleology of cool is to become mainstream. I mean, hence the whole idea of ascendance, um, And I think what's, I think, I think what's also interesting to bring in is like just the, the struggle that, you know, we talked about uh, belonging and a crew. And I think that that's in a lot of ways, what's driving, what drives cool. Uh, You know, the whole, you know, how many hipsters take screw in a light bulb, what you don't know, what you're not a part of this crew Mm. thing is about like this this cloistered group to which we all want to belong, which somehow has a premium on the kind of esoteric knowledge that we're interested in. Um, but that, that esoteric knowledge has to be like, you know, the handshake uh, is a version of esoteric knowledge. The, the nod, the password for the, uh, for the club, um, these sorts of things are contextually asymmetric and they must be somehow. And part of the sort of neuroses of wanting to belong, is um, the desire to belong against the struggle. You know, so we form these struggle clusters, and, um, and usually the struggle clusters are the ones that are the most cool. Mm. You know? um, the, the, the greatest struggle cluster of possibly ever is the African-American, and clearly the coolest struggle cluster that has ever been also, mm. uh, which also have their own password, uh, which only they can say, um, which we all know what that is. And um, I mean, it's it's this incredibly um, powerful uh, example of belonging and the struggle cluster. And yet you see sort of, you know, this, this sort of, um, this envy uh, to belong to that and to want to be a part of something like that, if not that. And, and I think that a lot of our neurotic affiliations are driven by a desire to belong to something like that. And to be, to set up oppressors as um, people who are saying my pronouns wrong or whatever mm. the case is, like, oh my God, how could you? Um, you know, and, and, and I have this, you know, I have I a have similar, <laughs> I have a similar predilection. Like I, I, um, I look at all that with envy. And then I also have my own things where it's like, you know, oh, you know, like the hippie thing, or I'm going to be earnest, or I'm suffering from this like constant desire to be on this sort of avant-garde, to be part of this sort of socially asymmetric moment. Because listen, I'll join you. You want to start this thing with, uh, with, with virtue? Cool, I'm in until it gets too cool. And then, and then I'm out. Right, right. You know what I mean? Because it's not going to satisfy my struggle cluster uh, compulsion anymore. And, um, and that's something that I have to constantly look at. Because to be truly virtuous is to be in a sort of more steady place where no matter what the sort of, you know, framing uh, uh, that, that transpires, I'm sort of still in the place I was in before. I still want what I wanted and I still believe in the things that I believed in, um, no matter how fucking popular they get. In fact, wasn't that the point? <laughs> and, um, and that's something that I think most of humanity, especially most of the hip kids in the world, will simply not look at. They simply, you know, everything I just said, they'll be like, oh, whole borderline cancelable, mm. you know? Like, because it's just too confrontational to look at any impetus that is non-essential. It's like, no, 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 I am this because I am this. There couldn't possibly be any other reason why I'm attracted to the things I'm attracted to. Um, and yet the desire to belong is just so powerful that, um, that it has to be looked at if we're going to be honest, and I think that's another function of uh, virtue. And I'd also say that you know the 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 thing that you've set up with Peter, uh, the whole Stoic label, and the idea of, for instance, the way you carry yourself, which is in a lot of ways similar to Peter. Hmm. You guys have both of you a sort of Stoic predisposition. Um, and I don't know if it's a predisposition; we have a Stoic disposition. i don't know how hard you've had to work for it right but it does do a thing where in contrast to me when i'm expressing myself and i'm all sort of like effervescent and i'm jubilant and i'm Mm. getting excited and i'm rambling on and then i'm like and then i hear you talk i'm like damn i like that how do you do that could i do that is that part could i i wonder how hard i would have to work to do that like you know maybe there's something he knows that i don't know maybe he like Maybe he's like more in time. Maybe that's like, you know, there's an emptiness there. There's a sort of portal hood to this that's going on. Or no, maybe I'm portaling and that's why I'm flowing. Maybe that's why there's a deluge happening is because I am vacant. Um, Maybe I've done the work or have I? And anyway, it introduces this question that I start to get this FOMO for your disposition. I'm like, Mm. okay, hold on. Let me do this. Let me do this. Yeah. (sighs) Well, I think that... um, one thing. And I start freaking out like, shit, I can't do it. I don't know what this is. Uh, You know, get me out of here. And, um, and, and, and in other words, I'm very attracted to the otherness, right? The thing that isn't me, the thing, the place where I'm not at, Mm. and, um, and the ability to be centered throughout uh, a conversation and stay in the same place throughout a conversation. Um, And I wonder to what extent that's, actually associable with virtue um you know and um i would think that for most people it's very associated with virtue because if we're being limbically hijacked all the time and we're being thrown around like ragdolls and i'm able to go from this emotion to that emotion this idea that, that to that idea well then in theory i'm more manipulable and uh and prone to be sort of um you know just the the incidental subject of, uh, advertising, whereas in a more stoic, removed sort of repose, I might be able to sort of subsist through those entreaties and, um, and you know, these are all just questions that, that go, that, that bounce around within me. And yet there's also this thing where it's like, well, what do I do when I'm alone? And I've suddenly hit an ecstatic moment of creativity. Well, I bounce around, I start shouting. Mm. And I get giddy. And I start um, laughing like I'm some fucking, you know, uh, sidekick henchman. And I, uh, you know, drop to the floor and I clasp my hands. and I do a little dance and I get naked and I start fucking writing things on the typewriter. And I make up new words. And I act kind of like how I'm acting right now. Right. And so some sometimes it's like, well, okay, I have to honor that too, right? That's, that's obviously somehow central <laughs> to my being. But I will say that before I get to those states, like you said, I do have to empty myself. In the morning I meditate. I'm quiet as fuck. Mm. You know. I get into uh, my meditative pose. I do uh, stretching. Um, I ask for the angels and muses to inhabit me. I invite them. And sometimes I can hear that they're not interested, and that means that I haven't uh, that I I must know too much this morning. I must not be empty enough this morning, um, because there must be no room in me for them to fill. They must be like, well, let's go somewhere else where we can have some input, because this guy apparently knows it all, and um, and uh, yeah, uh, I totally went off course there, but uh, but yeah. Oh oh, to say that your or, or the, the idea of being other than what I am or experiencing this state of sort of constancy is like when I started the idea of like, I want to be the I contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. I want to be a centralized figure within which the ghosts of my muses may inhabit as they please. And yet to always be centrally located to myself um, and not to feel like I have to burn myself up and not to feel that sort of, necessity of courage to push through, um, one skin into the other, but to be the permeated skin that subsists and consists of, um, the constantly unclosed, uh, universal self. And, you know, to the extent that's possible, um, well you know what? I'm not going to demure. That's fucking possible. I, I know that that's possible I <laughs> because I've experienced that for moments. Right. And if I don't think that's possible, you know, and I'm totally willing to fail, by the way, of course, failure. I, I like, you know, it's good to have these goals that are impossible um, because then that bakes in failure. And I'm totally willing for that. But I do think it is possible even though it could fail. I'm only saying that so that you don't think I'm uh, naive. The reality is I think it's totally possible.
1: Yeah. You know, in closing, just to kind of see if I can compress <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that beautiful deluge uh, in the last you know, couple of minutes. I, I think the word that kept coming to my head is uh, integrity. You know, because we're talking about virtue mm. and then you kind of articulated the, the different ways in which you and I are showing up where I, uh, I'm coming off you know, the, with this stoic disposition, which I've been accused of before um and and you're being uh more expressive and, and free and i Well no,
0: now see okay but i'm going
1: i'm going to protest but keep going but i'll protest Lynn. all right so uh, all, all i want to say is that i think what matters from a virtue perspective is is the sense of integrity and what you have integrity with so if i'm mm. If I have integrity with this appearance because I think Alex is going to think I'm cooler if I'm like super stoic and then I just like keep <laughs> doing that, that's not, that's not virtue.
0: That's hilarious. Right? right.
1: And so there's something else. Yeah. And I think it's that thing that is hard to name. Mm. It's that thing that you just admit it is possible to actually achieve even though it mm. sounds naive. And having integrity mm. with that is, is what I think is like that fundamental, uh, I guess, unit of virtue. Regardless of whether or not you mm-hmm. show up like a stoic or like a a Dionysian mm-hmm. madman, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, man, and and also you know the <laughs> Dionysian I madman, yeah. If if there's um if there's one thing I want to allow and give myself permission for, um, I, I will say that I do you know whenever I'm made comfortable or, or I'm engaged in such a way where someone's like, I want to, uh, experience what you have to say about something. I end up finding myself start, I, I start levitating in this way and mm-hmm. I start, you know, I, I start experiencing this and I'll only just witness myself doing this. Um, it's almost impossible, I think, for me to whip myself into something like this intentionally. And so I, I recognize a certain integrity, um, about, about that state, but at the same time, um, There is a beautiful, and, and something I'm very drawn to, which is uh, the repose of sort of like taking a breath and being, and, and you know what it is? I have, okay, here's a good, here's a good story. Hmm. It's not a story. This is, this is something I do all the time. And you mentioned it at the top of the podcast. Being on stage, and perform it. You get into the modes where suddenly things are clicking, and and by the, uh, I'll precede this. The thing that I do before I get on stage sometimes, and I'll just bring this in the context of the thing that I do sometimes that is relevant here is that I will get intentionally the most anxious uh, status anxiety. I'll drum up the most status anxiety I possibly can, um, as a as an exercise to create a impenetrable brick wall of status anxiety, such that the only way to pass through it is to dissipate myself, such that the ego no longer exists. Otherwise I, I cannot contend with this brick wall of status anxieties too much. If I go out there as me, I will fucking get crushed by the sheer weight of this anxiety. And so I must die before I go on stage. And so that's, that's what I'll do. And sometimes I'll smoke weed, which makes me very uh, anxious uh, in, term, in, in that sense. And I'll smoke weed and drum up that anxiety intentionally, go out, see the crowd. And um, until I get to that point of like that limitation of no return, and suddenly I have to drop it all. So anyway, I'll go out on stage at this point where I'm no longer visible to myself and I'm not there. And we get into the music and it's happening and it's all flowing and I'm in it and I'm in the zone. And all of a sudden I'll make a move that I realize was not deigned by the fucking authority of the muses. I did something because I thought it would be cool. I made a move or I did like somehow I did something. It was a turn of the hip. It was another snarl. It was some bullshit that was not real. And suddenly all my alarms go off. And the reasons they go off is because suddenly I'm back in my body. That brick wall is present. And the only thing I can do in those moments, and the thing that I do do, I've learned to do, and I think this is like, if there was anything I was going to communicate to people about, like, what to do. When that mm-hmm. happens, I stop. Sometimes I literally stop singing. But I definitely stop my body. I stay in one place. Sometimes I drop the microphone. I stop singing lyrics. And I wait. And I breathe. And I become nothing. I become a vessel I just stop. And from that place, eventually, hopefully, <laughs> some instinct returns, some initial impetus. You get to get to zero again and get that initial impetus. And, and I guess that's my relationship to the stoic state, is that it is fundamentally and has to be my home base. It is, without it, there is no, you are just flipping lids. There is no base to the container. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just essential, man. And, um, and, And, and by the way, this, this energy where when you hold down this, energy in a conversation, when, when, when one half of the conversation is holding down that base, it almost makes it the heights to which I feel comfortable going, uh, increase Mm. because you sort of present an oscillation between the base and the heights where it's like, okay, you know, and you not only remind me that I can go there, but in, in some ways, your very presence means I don't have to go there. Mm. Because it's like we're a one, we're a one made of two, of which one part is nothing, which is literally like you know Zizek's quote of what sublation is, a one made of two, of which one part is nothing, and by nothing I mean sort of the base, the base form, you know that 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 again that access, that at the beginning I talked about excess, the relationship between excess and absence, and that they're really the same thing, and that to in, acquire the 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 Ec- ecstasy of the excess you have to have your denominator in the absence they're 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 one and the same thing they represent the same thing they present themselves in some ways qualitatively quantitatively excess qualitatively absence you know and um and yeah i just always love that that combination that dance um, it's just crucial
1: alex Thank you very much for this conversation today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful man. Thank you so much and yeah. it's so nice to like finally talk to you. Yeah. This is great.